Okay, if you could turn it into your um, bulletins or in your Bible to 1 Samuel, and we're going to go to chapter 5. After the Philistines had captured the Ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then they carried the Ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon, fallen on his face on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. They took Dagon and put him back in his place. But the following morning, when they rose, there was Dagon, fallen on his face on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. His head and hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. That is why, to this day, neither the priest of Dagon or any others who enter Dagon's temple at Ashdod step on the threshold. The Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. He brought devastation on them and afflicted them with tumors. When the people of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not stay here with us, because his hand is heavy on us and on Dagon our God. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and asked them, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Have the ark of the God of Israel moved to Gath? So they moved the ark of the God of Israel. But after they had moved it, the Lord's hand was against that city, throwing it into great panic. He afflicted the people of the city, both young and old, with an outbreak of tumors. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. As the ark of God was entering Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought the ark of the God of Israel around to kill us and our people. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and said, Send the ark of God of Israel away. Let it go back to its own place, or it will kill us and our people. For death had filled the city with panic. God's hand was very heavy on it. Those who did not die were afflicted with tumors, and the outcry of the city went up to heaven. Well, in the summertime, we are trying to lighten things up, just sit back and relax, enjoy the story from the Word of God. We are going to cover 1 Samuel uh, chapter 4, 5, and 6. Uh, within your bulletin, you have chapter 5, so we're going to cover the chapter before that, the chapter after it, and uh, just enjoy uh, this wonderful story. The Philistines uh, defeated Israel and killed uh, 4,000 soldiers. And the Israelites uh, asked the question, why did God let this happen to us? Uh, what have we done wrong? And uh, so they decided uh, what they would do is they would bring out the Ark of the Covenant. And they would bring it out and bring it out to the battle site. And uh, then God would have no choice but to fight for them and help them defeat the Philistines. And uh, so they brought out the ark, brought it from Shiloh. They brought the uh, high priest's two oldest uh, sons, Hophni and Phinehas. They came out with the ark. And uh, the Israelites were so excited. The ark showed up in the camp, and they started cheering, and they started hurrahing. Uh, we're going to win now for sure. God is here. And uh, the Philistines heard that and were terrified. And they said, gods have come into the camp, or the gods of Israel have come into the camp, or the God of Israel has come into the camp. Nothing like this has ever happened before. We are doomed for sure. And here's what they said. They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Be strong, Philistines. Be men, or you will be subject to the Hebrews as they have been to you. 
be men and fight. So they think they're going to lose, but they go, listen, we're men. We might as well go out and we might as well fight our hardest, do what, do what is best to defeat the God of the Israelites. And they win the battle. The Philistines, tremendous slaughter. Uh, the text says Israel lost 30,000 soldiers. The ark of God was captured and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, the two, two high priests, they were killed. Uh, news goes back to camp. Eli, the high priest, is sitting down because it says he was very fat in his late 90s. And they tell him the bad news. And he falls over backwards and dies. And they take the news to his daughter-in-law. And they tell her, she is expecting and when she hears the bad news she goes into labor and she gives birth to a son names the boy Ichabod which means no glory because the glory of Israel has departed she dies so Hophni and Phinehas and Eli all the high priests they're all dead and uh, the daughter-in-law of the high priest is dead the ark is gone, captured. The soldiers are defeated. Israel's at its lowest. Now, for those of you who uh, know a lot of the Bible stories, this date is the date that Samson begins his career. So if you want to put that together with other, other stories in the Bible, the ark is captured and it's taken to Philistia, that's the same time Samson begins his career as uh, a, a bane in the side of uh, the Philistine side. But uh, Israel's decimated. This is terrible. How can it get any worse than this? That, takes up, that brings us to the story in your uh, bulletin of uh, chapter 5. The Philistines take the Ark of God and they take it to Ashdod. There are five Philistine cities. Each one has its own king, and uh, sometimes they fight against each other, but uh, often they fight against the common enemy, Israel, Egypt, Syria, Assyria, whatever it might be. And they take the Ark of the Covenant, and they take, put it into Dagon's temple, and they set it beside Dagon. And notice verse 3, when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon, fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. They took Dagon and put him back in his place. Now listen, this is supposed to be a little bit of irony. And it's kind of funny. It's funny because it says they pick up the God and they put the God back in his place. <laughs> Not they pick up a statue, right? They pick up the God and they help him out. Let's put the God back in his place. Verse 4. The following morning when they rose, there was Dagon, fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. His head and his hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. Now, it doesn't tell me what they did with Dagon that time. You had to fix him now. Call the doctor. <laughs> Dagon's got to be repaired and he's got to be picked up. Now the funny part of the, part of the irony of the story, part of the irony of the story is that the, the, the children of Israel 
aren't worshiping God the way they should. Uh, they're kind of relying on magic. Magic is when I can manipulate God to do what I want him to do. That's why we bring the Ark of the Covenant to the battle site. God has to fight for us now. we got the Ark here. Instead of getting on my knees and praying and instead of living the way I should be living, I try to manipulate God. Here's, I'll do something for you if you will do this for me. Um, that's not worship. And of course, the Philistines don't worship God. They consider this, hey, we have triumphed and we have won. Let's take the Ark of the Covenant. We'll bring it into our God's temple. We'll show that our God is superior and he is better and he is stronger than any other God. But it's funny, Dagon worships God, right? Dagon falls to his face on the ground before the Ark of the Covenant. The stupid idol knows to do what's right. Nobody else knows. But the idol knows. God makes it happen that way. Irony, verse 6. The Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. He brought devastation on them and afflicted them with tumors. Uh, the Greek text says tumors in the groin. Uh, one one uh, translation translates that as hemorrhoids. Um, it's bad, whatever it is. When the people of Ashdod saw that was happening, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not stay here with us. His hand is heavy on us and on, and on Dagon our God. That's so funny, right? The ark of the God of Israel, so his hand is heavy on us because we're mistreating him. We're not giving, giving him the honor and glory that he's due. And he's hard on, he's hard on our God too. So what shall we do? They answered, Have the ark of the God of Israel moved to Gath. So they moved the ark of the God of Israel. After they had moved it, the Lord's hand was against that city, throwing it into a great panic. He afflicted the city, people of that city, the young and the old, with an outbreak of tumors. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. And I love this, as the ark of God was going to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, they brought the ark of the God of Israel around here to kill us and our people. They won't even let it come into the city. Um, not very friendly. The Ashdod is not very friendly. God is hard on us. Let's send him to Gath. He destroys Gath. Hey, let's send him to Ekron. Ekron won't have any of it. They know what's going to happen. They say, no, don't, don't let it come here. So they call everybody together. What are we going to do? Let's send it back to Israel. Now, I don't know what the Philistines think about God and what they know about him because the Ark of the Covenant is not an idol. On top of the Ark of the Covenant are two cherubim. And I don't know if that, that's what they think the, the gods look like, those two angelic beings that face each other with their wings outspread over the Ark. I don't know if they think, hey, those are the, those are the pictures of God. The reality is, is that you cannot picture God. And so God is not represented at all. He is too great and too wonderful to be put in any kind of a representation. It diminishes who he is. It gives you the wrong idea. And so the God of Israel is actually never represented. He's invisible. Um, before we look at see what happens, let me just read some things here about uh, how we respond to God. 
Um, a God that exists but is not important might as well not exist. Uh, we live in a society still believes that God exists. Probably most people would say God exists. But it has no impact on their lives. It's about uh, probably... Uh, it has about as much impact on their lives as to whether Neptune exists. How many of you believe Neptune exists? Five of you? Okay, let me tell you, Neptune's real. <laughs> Neptune exists, is that true? Okay. How, does Nep- how, mu- how much does Neptune affect your life? <laughs> Who knows what Neptune does, right? I don't know if Neptune has anything to do with my life. It might do something for our solar system, but but I, I, I don't know how it would affect me or whether it affects me at all. And I think sometimes that's the way God is. I believe He exists, but the impact on my life is absolutely negligible. Zero. Now that's kind of the way it is for the Philistines. The Philistines believe God exists. The God of Israel is real. That's, the way, that's what they all think. They all think the God of Israel is real. And he's powerful, and he's meaningless to us. Sad. That's sad, right? They they know they know God's there. They know God's against them. They know this is powerful. They know there's something real going on here. And yet, in the end of the day, all they do is say, "Get it out of here. We don't want to have anything to do with it." I think that describes our society today. We have a society today that accepts the concept of God, but he's not important to people in our society. Saving faith, though, is repairing the rift between you and God. And it's more than just knowing the facts. It's more than just knowing that God is real. It's believing in Jesus Christ, accepting what he has done on the cross for you, that he was buried and he rose again to make a difference in your life. Um, It's interesting as you read the scriptures Uh, the Scriptures don't try to prove that God exists. The Scriptures assume God exists. They present themselves as the very Word of God. This is God speaking. It would be kind of like how silly if I were to stand up here today and say, let me prove to you that I exist. I could waste a lot of time. I'm just going to assume, hey, you believe I exist. I'm going to tell you what I think. I think that's what happens in the Scriptures. Uh, We have a growing belief today in magic. It's also part of this text. Magic is the idea that I can manipulate God or manipulate spiritual forces. And uh, God cannot be manipulated in any way. There is no technique to be learned to control God. There is no technique to be learned to control uh, evil spirits. They might let you think that you're in control, but you're not in control. We live in an age fascinated by magic. You see that for Israel, magic, uh, there's no place for it. They think they're going to win the battle because the Ark of the the Covenant is there. And God just lets it get taken, lets them get defeated, because he will not be manipulated or even thought to be able to be manipulated. Dagon was, uh, we used to think Dagon was a fish god. Looked like a merman. (laughs) A merman with scales at the bottom and little arms and a head. Um, Don't know if he was a merman or not. Maybe. They found found, uh, little idols like that with a a merman. But they probably thought that he was for sure a fertility god. He was in charge of success and uh, how prosperous you were. 
And so they would worship him because they wanted to have a successful life and they wanted to have a good crop. And there were even two cities in, in, the, in Palestine called Beth Dagon, the house of Dagon. Found temples to Dagon in some Canaanite cities. And Dagon was supposed to be the head god. He was the, he was the father of Baal. And yet when you put him up next to God, there's no contest. Dagon had no power, no power to even save himself. Instead, before God, he is broken and fallen down. If you have a God that you have to pick him up, or if you have a God that you worship and you can carry him around, you're setting your sights way too low. But let me tell you, we have set our sights way too low. Because the things that are of supreme importance to us, the things that are most important to us in life, our money, our health, are flimsy things. Easily gone. And if you set your sights on those, you've set your sights far too low. Notice what happens to the ark. Chapter 6. The princes of the Philistines decide, we've got to send the ark out of here. It's going to destroy us. So they come up with a plan. Let's put it on a new cart, and inside the cart, we'll put some guilt offerings together. We'll give uh, five, five golden mice, five gold rats, and five gold tumors. And we're going to send that as a gift back to the people of Israel and to the God of Israel. Notice what he says. Make models of the tumors the rats that are destroying the country, and give glory to Israel's God. Perhaps he will lift his hand from you and your gods and your land. Give glory to Israel's God. Why do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh did when Israel's gods dealt harshly with them? Did they not send the Israelites out so they could go on their way? So they got a new cart together. They took two cows that had just given birth to calves and had never been yoked. So these are cows that don't know how to pull a cart. They don't know how to work together. They don't know what they're doing. And they put the ark on the back of the cart. They hook it up to the two cows and they send it on their way because they're still not sure. Is it really God that's doing this or is this coincidence? Is this just chance? that we're getting, we're getting hammered and we're getting desolated and Dagon has fallen on his face. Is this just chance? Let's find out, make finally for sure. So they put the ark on the back of the cart, they hit the back of the cow to see where it goes. And those two cows pull together, they go straight down the road, they head for Israel, for Beth Shemesh. And they moo the whole way. Moo, 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 moo. People, people working in the fields can see the cart coming. There's nobody driving it. And it's mooing. And there are the Philistine kings following the cart to see what happens. <laughs> Just to see where it goes. And sure enough, it heads back to Israel. Uh, now they know it didn't happen by chance. I heard a sermon. Um, I heard a sermon when I was younger, and I can't remember what age I was. I was probably in my twenties, and it was about uh, this scripture passage and the theory of evolution. 
I wish I'd taken better notes on the sermon, but I can still remember part of it. Evolution is based on chance. Okay, given enough chances, life can come from nothing. Given enough chances. So everything that you see is a result of chance. Okay, that's science, right? Given enough chances, some, and anything can happen. I was just reading, uh, reading about this uh, this week. Uh, there's a book called uh, The Logic of Chance. It's actually an anti-theistic book. The guy does not believe in God, and does he won't have anything to do with any belief in God. And he's written a book, Logic of Chance, to prove evolution. But it's interesting. He says the odds for just life to begin, the odds for life to begin are 10 to 1,018. Now, 10 to 1,018, I would probably need an engineer to come up here and explain how big that number is. Uh, here's how big that number is. Do you know how big you know how big an atom is? Really small. In this room, there are a lot of atoms, right? Is that right? A lot of atoms in this room, right? Okay. The number of atoms in the universe is 10 to the to 80. The number of atoms in the universe, the known universe, is 10 to 80. That's a lot of atoms. It's a big number. The chance of life is 10 to 1,018. So the chance is, if I said, can you find such and so an atom in the universe, you could never find it, right? 10 to the 80. It's impossible to find it. That's 1 in 10 to the 80. You couldn't find it. The chance for life to begin is 10 to 1,018. This is from somebody who doesn't believe in God and, 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 and can't stand him. Won't have anything to do with it. And he comes up with this and he goes, he's puzzled. He's puzzled to explain how we have a universe. And so that's, that's where the theory of evolution is. How can we explain how life first began? The chance, the idea of chance just doesn't work. The chance is too great. And that's just, that's just for life to begin. We're not even talking about... Uh, to evolve to where we are, um, face it, this world is here not by chance. It's not by chance that this happens. God has done it. God's created all things. He's created us in, in his image. Uh, that's why the chance won't work out. You have to put God back into the equation. Well, then if God is real... What does that mean for you? What should you do with God? And I suggest to you that most people do with God what the Philistines do. We think he's real. We think he's there. Let's send him somewhere else. Uh, the people of Beth Shemesh, when they got the ark, they worshipped. They celebrated. They sacrificed. They honored the fact that God was glorifying himself. You've probably heard the catechism, the question, that asked, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's the answer. Chief end of man is to glorify God, give God what he's due, 
Give him the thanks that he's due. Give him the worship that he's due. Give him the obedience that he's due. Glorify God and enjoy him forever. And we glorify God by enjoying God. And the Philistines missed out on all of that, even though they thought he was real. Romans 11 says this, For from him, that's God, and through him, and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. That includes us. We are for God. Romans 1 says this, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal man, mortal human being, and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over. What God expects from us is to glorify him and give thanks to him. In Revelation chapter 5, we see that it's exactly what God gets because he deserves it. John writes, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Amen. God has made you so that you would have a relationship with him, that you would honor him and glorify him. And what are you doing with God today? Are you holding him at arm's length? Are you sending him away? Or are you embracing him, giving your life to him, giving him your all? That is what is due him for his glory. And anything else falls short of the glory of God. Falls short of the glory of God. Tremendous sin. Tremendous wickedness to fall short of the glory of God. To give him what he's due. We should be doing that. Give him what he's due. Believe in his son. Accept his son. Turn to Jesus Christ. Cast your sins upon him. He will set you free. Have a great relationship with our God. Let's look to the Lord in prayer.